Friends, this has been a difficult week in the midst of a long, difficult time. Some of you have lost homes, and I'm so sorry for your loss. Others of you have lost homes in the previous fire, and this newest fire may have brought up wounds that are still pretty fresh. Some of you may be like my family and me, living close enough to the fire line in each fire to be evacuated now for the third or fourth time, displaced and worried. And even if you live away from the burn areas, there is the smoke in the air and the concern for your loved ones and our community. We are weary, we are traumatized. We wish this would end and yet see no end in sight. What do we do with all of these feelings? I think when we reach the limits of our capacity to deal, we have to bear everything raw and real before God, much like the ancient people who wrote, prayed, and sang the Psalms. We are in the middle of our series on praying the Psalms, and we pastors chose Psalm 137 for this day months ago. And I'm grateful that the Spirit prompted us to do so, because this week, as I was exhausted, stressed out, and evacuated, I was reflecting on the words of our scripture for this week, Psalm 137, which we will hear read in a moment. And what I saw was this, a traumatic experience can bring up strong feelings. In the case of Psalm 137, it's grief and rage and it is okay, in fact, it's essential to bring these strong feelings before God. Psalm 137 is both a psalm of lament and an imprecatory psalm, meaning it is a curse psalm. The words of express grief over a community destroyed and a desire to see the perpetrators punished. The words of Psalm 137 speak to us of a people captured in war and forcibly relocated to Babylon. The psalmist wonders whether she can sing a song of the Lord in this foreign land as she longs for her homeland and craves retribution for her captors. Psalm 137 gives words to multi-layered trauma and grief and cries out for justice. Many times when the psalm is read as part of a church service or used in a hymn, the last three lines are omitted. Today we will read them all. As we hear the psalm read, I ask you to remember that to attempt to understand Psalm 137 in all its fullness in no way means we want or condone violence, nor does it mean that we believe that true justice can ever be served through brutality. To ponder 137 in its entirety simply means that we are unafraid to face the full range of human emotional expression with compassion and without suppressing the words of those who suffer. Let us listen to the words of the psalmist. A reading of Psalm 137. NRSV, a lament over the destruction of Jerusalem. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. 
on the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Psalm 137 in its entirety is beautifully poetic and tragic and terrifyingly honest. Some readers, upon hearing the last three verses, are tempted to judge the psalmist, to reject the words as unacceptable, to cut them out because the rage at the end of the psalm, the image of dashing little ones against the rocks is so shocking and vile that it is understandable to want to turn away and distance oneself from those words. Yet, when we rush to judgment and we immediately judge the speaker of the psalm for her thirst for vengeance, we miss the larger picture. Instead of jumping to judgment, let us ask, what is the context that would prompt a person to voice such anger? Preeminent Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann suggests asking interpretive questions about angry psalms, asking questions like, who do you imagine could talk like that? Do you know anybody who could talk like that? Or have you seen anybody in the news lately that you could imagine talking like that? Brueggemann goes on to say that a psalm like 137, you could imagine that it's a mother who's picking up the pieces of her exploded son or something like that and has to talk like that. This state of mind Brueggemann calls being in extremis. Those moments when what we know almost immediately is that our safe conventional language doesn't quite work. Living in extremis, those are the times Brueggemann says we need to open to our authoritative voices from our tradition who speak faith in ways other than the way we speak faith. The author of Psalm 137 writes of an experience that is truly beyond safe, conventional language. We are hearing the words of a victim, an innocent victim of war, a captive forced to labor in a foreign land who desperately cries out for justice. Psalm 137 is about the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BCE. The Babylonians ravaged the city, destroyed the temple, and eventually carried away to Babylon much of the leadership and the educated people. Recent scholarship proposes that Babylon was hoping to extract value from the state of Judah, where Jerusalem was, by turning it into a vassal state, meaning that Judah might maintain some semblance of independent governance in exchange for paying monetary and military tribute to Babylon basically like a colony of Babylon. 
But the leaders of Judah proved to be too independent, so Babylon destroyed Judah's leadership and forced them away from their land into exile in Babylon. The Judean exiles were likely forced marched there over a distance possibly of more than 800 miles. Some were coerced into unpaid labor, similar to slavery, building and maintaining irrigation ditches and other public works projects, including ambitious temples after their own was destroyed. Psalm 137 gives us some clues that its author was once a temple musician in Jerusalem, now carried away to Babylon and forced to dig irrigation ditches. In fact, some translations of Psalm 137 render verse 1 as by the irrigation canals of Babylon. We might picture the circumstances surrounding Psalm 137 to be a musician marched away from the rubble of his home, having seen his temple destroyed, now forced to dig ditches in Babylon, while his Babylonian overseers look on, demanding that the captives sing while they work. In an act of protest, the former musicians hang their instruments in the trees. The psalmist asks himself, how could he possibly sing a song of the Lord? a song that belongs in worship in the temple, on demand as entertainment for his captors. Let us notice that the psalmist voices possible punishment on himself first, before he wishes pain on his captor. When, as he vows to remember Jerusalem, and Jerusalem and Zion here is, yes, homely, but also stands for a sense of identity as the chosen people with a unique covenant with the one true God. Should the psalmist forget his homeland and his identity, he wishes for his hand to wither and his tongue to cleave to the roof of his mouth. If the psalmist is indeed a musician, this immolation would compound the tragedy, for he is essentially wishing for his ability to play music and to sing to be taken away so that he might suffer more should he forget who he is. In light of the extreme circumstances the psalmist is under, perhaps we can have some compassion for him, even when we hear of his desire for vengeance. Though it is true in ancient warfare, children were often cruelly killed, so it was more normalized back then, and the psalmist desires proportionate revenge uh, that the children of Babylon be treated the same way that the Babylonians treated the children of Judah. Jewish and Christian commentators have been working over the ethical issues of having this kind of vengeance in this psalm for nearly two millennia, and these ethical questions will likely never be resolved. It is perhaps of some comfort that there is no evidence that the ancient Israelites actually perpetrated vengeance on the Babylonians. Some of them, in the words of Jeremiah, sought the welfare of the city to which they were exiled, building houses, planting gardens, intermarrying with the Babylonians and praying for the welfare of the city. Others returned home after the exile to restart their lives and rebuild the temple. However, the brutal honesty of Psalm 137 lays bare the psalmist's raw feelings at her unjust situation in a way that has helped others over history 
voice their own distress. In the book, Song of Exile, The Enduring Mystery of Psalm 137, author David W. Stowe says of Psalm 137, that the full version of the psalm may not be the most appropriate text for contemporary spirituality, but it does provide us with a reminder that there are dimensions of our personal and collective lives that do evoke anger and the desire for revenge, and that these cannot simply be wished away or ignored. For example, within American history, this psalm was a favorite of the anti-slavery abolitionist Frederick Douglass. He quoted it in his famous 1852 address, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, taking up the words of the psalm as the, quote, plaintive lament of peeled and woe-smitten people, as he lifted up the cries of the enslaved people in America alongside those who wept by the rivers of Babylon, and echoed the voices of enslaved people forced to sing while they toiled, as the captors of the ancient people prodded them too to sing. Emboldened by the words of the psalmist, Douglas brings his impassioned judgment on the evil of slavery. Although unlike the psalmist who cries for revenge, Douglas ultimately ends his speech with a call for the end of bloodshed, a call to return evil with good, and an appeal for friendship, brotherhood, and equality. Douglas knew then, and we know now, that tit-for-tat is not the highest moral law. In the book Song of Exile, David Stowe reminds us that it is not our own wisdom and piety which enable us to detect the religious deficiencies of our ancestors, meaning we look back on 137 and recognize how wrong that vengeance is, but rather it is the sifted piety and the purified wisdom of the past which enable the present to start at a higher more moral and religious level. We know better now because of all the time and work and thought that has come between the time of the psalmist and now. In fact, in a book from even 1899 for Jewish parents on reading the Bible with their children in regards to Psalm 137, the writer says, Dwarfs on giants' shoulders see further than giants. Dwarfs on giants' shoulders see further than giants. So looking forward, now that we have looked into the past, how can we connect the psalm to our lives today? I think it's really important, actually, that we did read the psalm in its entirety and both have compassion for the psalmist and be horror-stricken by the last few verses because as we reflect on the psalm, we might remind ourselves how in the present time, circumstances happen every day all over the world that really could justifiably trigger rage in individuals and communities. I think we're all traumatized enough right now between the fires and the coronavirus that there's no need for me to recount particular contemporary scenarios. But if you have asked yourself the question, who might speak like this, you have likely come up with your own answers or maybe have experienced this feeling yourself. Certainly, grief and anger and even a desire to see punishment or justice, such as the psalmist experiences, is an understandable response to experiencing tragedy of any kind. Yet, 
Though we hear the psalmist voice his or her anger, the psalmist is not acting their own, enacting their own revenge. He is not perpetrating any violence. Rather, the psalmist is bringing her or his worst imaginable desire before God, and as a faithful believer, placing that desire in God's hands where it belongs, trusting in God. There is great power in doing so. For example, Croatian-born theologian Miroslav Volf recalls reading the psalm, Psalm 137, in a worship service in the mid-1990s while former Yugoslavia was at war. He describes the scene. He says, Sunday morning service, I don't know what year. It was in Osijek, that's a town in North Croatia on the River Drava. Serbian forces at that time were about five kilometers to the east and also immediately across the river to the north. The city was completely surrounded. I think about a third of its population then were refugees. I knew that the church would be maybe a third filled up with refugees who belonged to the small Pentecostal church up north and had been driven out. What I recall is that when I read the psalm, a totally hushed silence descended upon the congregation. I've never heard a text from scripture speak so powerfully, not simply to the people, but from the people, as if it was inscribed in their faces. In the sermon, I was simply narrating the background of the psalm. They were in the psalm. This, their experiences, was that, the psalmist's experiences. People were sitting on the edges of their seats. Somebody, no God, was in God's holy word, singing their pain. Wolf then continues to say, and then obviously the question, what do we do as Christians? Who ought, not, who ought not to be enraged and full of lust for vengeance, but yet we are. And so it's not just that somebody has articulated it here, but what do I do? What do I do who are supposed to love my enemies and now what do I do with this? How do I tie it to Jesus's journey on the cross? Wolf says, for me, the connection was the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As a complaint, a despairing complaint before God, and yet in the presence of the one to whom it was directed, also always containing at least a whiff of the hope of resurrection. For us now, the psalm might not speak so directly to our situa situation as in Wolf's story. Yet we can relate to the experience of being displaced by events out of our control. We too may want to sit down and weep as we remember life before, before the fires, before the pandemic. Yet, where is our enemy? Who would we curse if we could? It might feel more simple to have a clearly defined enemy upon which to unleash our pent-up anger. But if we look closely, we will see there is no outside enemy, only us, our people, our community, our country, our system of government. 
Our enemy is not some outside other like the Babylonians. Instead, we battle viruses, wildfires, and climate change, and fear for the integrity of our elections and our system of government. The temptation to turn on one another and create enemies out of neighbors is strong right now. We must resist that temptation. As Christians, rage, along with grief and all our other emotions, belong before God. When praying a psalm like 137, a curse psalm, we also bring our enemies before God as well as we name them, releasing our pent-up aggression before the Almighty, who cares for us, who loves us, and does justice. Bringing the emotions that we are afraid of or ashamed of out of the dark corners of our hearts into the light of God opens us up to forgiveness and the possibilities of a new way of life. When we bring our hurts before God, we avoid turning on one another and we remain open to the hope of resurrection. Today, the Christian Church around the world commemorates Worldwide Communion Sunday, which celebrates our oneness in Christ with all our brothers and sisters around the world. With the Last Supper, Jesus Christ gave us the gift of communion and the command to remember who we are in him. Across civilizations, societies, and history, with much of humanity, we share the feeling or experience of being displaced. The exiles in Babylon who sat and wept by the rivers cried out to God and vowed to remember who they were as a people of God when they lost everything. Now we sit and weep before God once more for our homes, for our hills, for our air, and for our community. Now we must remember who we are as a people of God. Our identity and hope is in Christ alone. Let us remember who we are. We are a people of the resurrection. Thanks be to God. Amen.